Welcome back to another episode of Keep It Brief. I'm SK and I'm here with Cam. And we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. So in October, on October 2nd, the Supreme Court started a new nine-month term. And they've just started to release some of the different contexts for cases that they're going to be hearing in the upcoming term. And in light of this, every couple episodes, we are going to start doing a docket debrief where we will be discussing some of these cases that the Supreme Court will be hearing. Um, The way the episodes are going to work is we are going to just briefly run over some of the facts of the cases and then talk about the constitutional questions posed by each case for a little bit. And I don't know if you guys remember, but in the first episode, Camden talked about some of the proceedings of the Supreme Court and how cases get to the Supreme Court. So Camden, would you mind giving us a little refresher on how a case makes it on the docket and what the Supreme Court evaluates when choosing different cases to hear? I'd love to. So as I said in the first episode, there are about 7,000 cases per year that attempt to have their case heard at the Supreme Court level. Only about 100 to 150 of those are selected and added to the docket. So to be added to the docket, you have to have four out of the nine justices vote that they would like to hear your case. And at that point, you are added to the docket, as I said, and there's a lot of things that happen after that, but that's not necessarily important for our segment today. To have a case chosen, it typically has lots of national relevancy. There's possibly a disagreement in lower courts. So the Supreme Court wants to try to mitigate that disagreement and come to a consensus on what the Constitution would say about this certain issue, or possibly there's different types of precedent set by past cases that they've decided that would be extremely applicable to the case at hand. So we are now going to look at a case that has been added to the docket, as SK said, for this new sort of section of our show. And this case, it has not been argued yet. So I'll just be telling you about the different facts and then as SK said, the constitutional question. This case is Vital versus Elster. According to the Oyez Project, in 2018, Steve Elster attempted to register a potentially suggestive phrase about President Donald Trump for use on various types of shirts, intending the mark to serve as political commentary on President Donald Trump and his policies. The Patent and Trademark Office examiner rejected the application, citing two sections of the Lanham Act, Section 2C, which prohibits registering a mark that identifies a living individual without their consent and section 2a which bars marks that falsely suggest a connection with living or dead persons elster then appealed arguing that the provisions infringed on his first amendment rights and were not narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest the board upheld the examiner's decision based solely on section 2c asserting that the statute is constitutional and serves compelling government interests including the protection of individual rights and consumer protection elster appealed the decision and the federal circuit court then reversed it. So now this will be heard on the Supreme Court at some point during this session. And the main constitutional question that they are trying to determine is whether or not the refusal to register a trademark when the mark contains criticism of a government official or a public figure, whether or not that violates the free speech clause to the First Amendment. So SK, after I explain all of that, what are your initial thoughts? So my initial thoughts are that no, it does not violate the First Amendment in refusing to register this as a trademark. Obviously, especially in this era, you know, 
having to do with politics, there's almost like a meme culture and even Trump himself like loves to come up with different names for his opponents and things like that. And I think it is an interesting question to pose because it's like different between it's a difference between maybe making like a T-shirt about a celebrity versus, you know, an elected official or a potentially elected official, a public official, because, yes, we do have, you know, a right to a public forum and an ability to to talk about public officials. But at the same time, I think that, no, it does not violate the First Amendment because, you know, this guy has the right to he can like post that on his Twitter. He can post it on Instagram if he wants to like write a newsletter and send it out to people. There's nothing stopping him from freely expressing that thought. What's stopping him is from being able to like make money off of somebody else's name or to profit off of that expression of his opinion. Because I mean, really, if you think about it, it's like kind of idiotic, you know, if if he was able to get that registered as a trademark, then what happens like if Trump wanted to make the same t-shirt with the same phrase about himself, does he like no longer have, you know, a right to his own name? So I think, no, it doesn't violate it purely because it's not like a blanket ban on being able to express those thoughts. It's sort of just where the intersection between profit and free speech. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point to bring into light. I guess I'm wondering too, you know, would this even be an issue if and I mean, I I fully understand that the constitutional question is referring to the trademark and the fact that they don't want to give him the trademark. But if he wasn't getting this trademarked and he just decided to sell the shirt, I'm just wondering if that would pose an issue as well and what ramifications that would have for this man and his attempt to make money in this way. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's just an interesting situation especially when, as you said, this sort of political commentary and sort of culture that the country's created, it's just so common and everyone does it. Right. So it's it, this feels, in my opinion, like a little, a little frivolous, but... Yeah, that is interesting because I definitely feel like, you know, I've seen lots of t-shirts and stuff, even with like Trump's picture and stuff, that I have an inclination that the people who were producing those were not, you know, seeking out a trademark or to like, you know, pay, I guess... I don't know if that's just like music, but like sort of the equivalent of like royalties um, to Trump. Right. And so I don't know if that's something where it's like, oh, he was, he's just we're going to assume he's too busy and see how long we can like get away with it until someone, you know, slaps us on the wrist. Exactly. I mean, where are the alien and sedition acts when you need them? Seriously. <laughs> so kidding. Let's not bring that back. <laughs> We have a few more cases to unpack, and we are really excited to do that. But right now, you are listening to Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale, channel 101.7 FM WRFH. So the next case we're going to be getting into is O'Connor Ratcliffe v. Garnier. So the facts of the case, again, on the Oyas Project, which... I think we'll be referencing quite frequently and be using as our primary source for these docket debriefs. So on the Oyas project, it says petitioners Christopher and Kimberly Garnier are parents of children in the Poe United School District in the city of Poe, California, just north of San Diego. The Garniers frequently posted comments critical of the district's board of trustees on the social media pages of the trustees including respondents Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe and TJ Zane. For their school board campaigns, O'Connor Ratcliffe and Zane created personal Facebook and Twitter pages, which they updated with their official titles once elected and continued to use to post about school district business and news. The trustees began to hide or delete the critical and often repetitive comments by the Garniers, and then around October 2017, they blocked the Garniers from their social media pages. After the trustees blocked the Garniers, the Garniers sued them, arguing that their social media pages constitute public fora and that by blocking them, the trustees violated their First Amendment rights. 
The district court granted declaratory and injunctive relief to the Garniers, but found that the trustees had qualified immunity from the damages claims. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed. So the constitutional question that this case poses is not that different from the case that Camden just talked about. So the question is, does a political official engage in state action subject to the First Amendment by blocking an individual from the official's personal social media account, which the official uses to communicate about a job related matters with the public? And so, Camden, I don't know if you have any initial reactions to this, particularly, you know, and maybe in relation to the case we just talked about. They both are pretty similar. First and foremost, I would just like to say I don't know why the Garniers care if they can't see the page when all they have are negative things to say about it. Uh, I'm mostly kidding, obviously, when I say that, but it this just feels like a petty disagreement in, you know, I don't know how big the town of Poe is, but it's giving like small town um, drama. And so the fact this is at the Supreme Court is kind of making me laugh. But I do think with the relevance of social media and Twitter and all these things, it is important to ask questions like this. So while the details, in my opinion, seem a little silly, the constitutional question is extremely large. The part that sticks out most to me is that in the question, it states that it's the official's personal social media account. Based on my understanding of this case, when they say that these accounts are the official's personal account that leads me to believe that you know this isn't some sort of like government issued platform on these social media um platforms or anything like that so i in my opinion would say that they would be allowed to block these people it's not that they're necessarily taking away their opportunity or their right to say these things it's just giving someone the power to protect themselves from speech they don't want to hear um the and it also, in my opinion, I would say then there should be some sort of like official platform where they relate to um with the public about different things they're doing with their job. And it shouldn't just be on their per- like if this is, you know, Jane Doe's personal Facebook page and she's talking about what she's doing in the school board. It's like, well, Jane Doe, you should have a page for Jane Doe school board member rather than just also where you're posting about your kid's fifth birthday. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it would be an important thing to to discover whether these posts just became school district business posts or if they were still feathered in with like personal use. Because I think, you know, I think in in essence, like I agree with you, but I guess more of like my angle of how I was thinking it is like, okay, yes, they're personal pages, but then once they're elected, if they update them with their official titles and start to use them to like post about it, like, yes, they're not they were p- personal, but like de facto, they are now official pages. Yeah, that's a valid point. But I think, again, it would be very important to specify. It's like, okay, are they just now using them to only post about that or are they doing both? Um, and yeah, in that case, too, it's like if it is, yes, you have like a, you know, that it becomes like a public fora. And so, again, if it was like if, if these people had like a personal and an official account and if these people were sort of harassing them on their personal accounts, then yeah, I think you totally have the right to like protect yourself from stuff that you don't want to hear. But then again, if it's like, if this is in essence, like the like public fora, then it's like, okay, well, you know, as an elected public official, you aren't immune from criticism and you certainly don't 
have the right to cherry pick what it is out of the public opinion that you choose to hear and pay attention to. I think we learned too from COVID when parents were able to see what their kids were learning on Zoom and being exposed to every day, we had a newfound awareness for how much power these elected officials truly have over influencing our children and the next generation. And so I think we have a heightened sense of importance for being able to hold these elected school board officials accountable, how whatever that may look like. I really like your perspective on this, and I think it draws out an important aspect of this case and this situation in understanding that obviously these school board officials have a responsibility to respond to their constituency. And like you said, post-COVID, there's been an uptick in people caring about school board issues. I do think it would be interesting to look at and sort of have you know, the court or even like public opinion determine like what is the responsibility of someone on a school board? Like, is it a part of their job description to respond to social media comments? Are there other forums in which people have the opportunities to share their commentary and, you know, interact with these people? Uh, So yeah, I think social media just adds a really unique aspect to all of this. Obviously, it is sort of like the bread and butter of this because they were blocked from the personal Facebook and Twitter pages. But at what point does Facebook and Twitter become a part of the job description for a school board member? Right. And I that's that's no, that's a great point. And I think that's why it's interesting that we have these two cases we talked about that go hand in hand, because if they are elected public official, maybe it has just as much of an application as social media would for, say, you know, that t-shirt dude wanting to talk about Trump, you know, like the same, you know, it's like, okay, do we hold our president and like even small school board elected officials to the same um, level of, you know, obligation and responsibility in terms of that? Because obviously there's like completely different ramifications for them and like on their day to day, because it's like, okay, the school board, like if it's a small town, you know, that becomes something where it's like, okay, it affects your reputation more and everything. But when it's someone, you know, as as famous as Trump, it's like that that impact and those quote unquote damages are like much harder to track if, you know, they even exist at all. Yeah, that's such a good point. And that's obviously such a complicated part about all of this is there's so many nuances to every single case. And I think it's this one like this one in particular, I think, especially your COVID point is really interesting uh, and just sort of the countrywide shift that's happened and i think i'll be definitely checking in to see how this one plays out yeah absolutely it's super interesting to consider all of the cases that the supreme court is going to be ultimately deciding the verdict on in in this upcoming term because a lot of these cases may end up setting precedent for cases that are decided, you know, in 50, 100 years from now. So it's a really, really cool thing to consider and think about. And that's exactly what we do here on Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, WRFH. I think it's interesting, Cam, because I know you said earlier in the episode that the Supreme Court considers national significance when deciding what cases they will be hearing each term. And there's... Uh, an interesting dynamic that exists because even 
in the case of a lot of cases, which the Supreme Court declines to hear, which is most of them because they don't, you know, hear that many throughout the year, um, they still will raise, you know, a constitutional question within like sort of the public sphere. So even though the, the Supreme Court isn't necessarily going to unpack it or decide anything on it, it still raises a good point of discussion among, you know, political pundits, voters, and especially in this scenario, you know, it's a, a topic of debate regarding the election that's upcoming. And so I think, Camden, you had an example of a case that was recently declined at the beginning of the term, um, but is still very relevant and interesting. Yes. So on October 2nd, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case that challenged the constitutionality of letting Donald Trump run for president again. Basically, the aspect of the Constitution in question was referring to the 14th Amendment, which and there's a clause in there that states that anyone who has engaged in an insurrection or aided or comforted insurrectionists is then ineligible to uh, run for any sort of public office or continue to hold that public office. So John Anthony Castro, he is someone seeking the Republican presidential nominee. He's from Texas and he filed these lawsuits citing that the this provision of the 14th Amendment would not allow Donald Trump to run again. This provision that we are referring to is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and it's really unique because if you serve the government in any sort of official capacity, you obviously then are taking an oath to uphold and protect the Constitution, and the founders' understanding of all of this was that if you, you know, engage in insurrection or aid or comfort any sort of insurrectionist that's just inherently undermining the constitution which in their opinion gave them grounds to then bar people from any sort of government service this was then applied obviously then post-civil war uh and it banned any sort of person any person who participated with the confederacy and then holding public office right and since that provision was aimed as sort of or it's commonly interpreted to be understood as aimed at preventing the Confederacy from being able to run for public office. I think it's a really, really big stretch to try to apply that now because the provision has no specific definition for what an insurrectionist is. And so then we we become, you know, we put ourselves in a position of taking the power out of the hands of the people. And now we're relying on a few select individuals basically to determine who they believe to be an insurrectionist and ultimately be able to prevent someone from running for public office, which is a, a, a wildly large amount of power for just a few people to have. Exactly. And I think it's extremely interesting that this case came to light. And obviously, as we said, it's not even being heard, but there's such a longstanding tradition of trying to thwart political opposition in this country. A lot of it dates back to even James Madison's discussion of factions in Federalist 10, his fear of factions is so strongly rooted in the fact that he feels factions don't have the best interests of the country at heart. And the founders a lot of times struggled to understand that there could be more than one popular party that is attempting to exercise the will of the entire people, about the whole country. And this, in my opinion, is like extremely connected to that. There's also 
when James Monroe was running for president and we essentially were living in the era of the uniparty. Uh, and it was one of our first looks in history at a country that didn't have two political parties. And he explained that he felt like it was the party of the people and then versus anarchists or monarchists. And his assumption there and what he basically wanted people to derive from that statement was that, you know, there was one party just of the people and that anyone who's an anarchist is then essentially anti-constitution and then not uh, a valid or legitimate party here in the United States. And it draws a lot of questions then to say, well, do we feel that socialism undermines the constitution? And then is that something that we shouldn't allow people to do? It gets into free speech and freedom of association trying to determine, okay, can this person do this thing uh, or say this thing or believe this thing? And if they do, does that then essentially mean that they don't have not only our country's best interest, but then they don't also have an understanding of the constitution and what the government requires to then be able to like execute the constitution faithfully. I think those are all really interesting aspects of this case. And it has a, as I said, a longstanding connection to so many different things that have happened throughout our political history. Thank you so much for listening to our first ever docket debrief here on Keep It Brief. We hope you tune in next week on Radio Free Hillsdale channel 101.7 FM WRFH. <laughs>